Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited for you to be joining me here on the Learner's Corner podcast today. And do I have a great guest for you today. Today, I am talking with Seth Godin, and many of you may be familiar with Seth. He is an entrepreneur. He has started many successful companies. He's taught millions of people, and he has left his mark on on the creative culture of, of entrepreneurship. He's authored many books, several that I've led, or not led, read, including um, The Icarus Deception, Lynchpin, The Dip, This Is Marketing, Purple Cow, and at the time of this, he's recently released a brand new book called The Practice, and the subtitle being Shipping Creative Work. And so we're going to talk with him about that today, along with many other things as well. But before we get into that, I do want to let you know uh, that this episode of the Learner's Corner podcast is made possible by one person. Well, actually, it's made possible by many people, but that's a whole different story in itself. But uh, I do want to thank Sam Massey for creating the music for this episode of the podcast. All the music that you're hearing is created by him. Also, I'm going to give a quick shout out uh, to the guy who edits the podcast, Garrett Oler. So thank you both for doing that. And thank you for help making this podcast great and helping me with it as well. And if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, you know, on this podcast, we truly believe that we can learn from anything and from everything from anyone and from everyone. And that's why it's called the Learner's Corner Podcast, because this is for lifelong learners, people who want to learn from anyone and everyone, everything and everything. And that's why I'm so excited for this podcast, especially this conversation with Seth Godin. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Seth. Well, Seth, I am so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Well, thanks for doing this work. It really does matter. Yeah. And just as we get started, you know, you're you're coming out with this brand new book called The Practice. And anytime that anyone creates any type of work of art, I absolutely love hearing the story or the series of events that led someone to decide, I need to put this thing out into the world. And so I would just love to hear that from you. Oh, I think I've been working on this one for about 40 years and trying to understand why do some people ship creative work and other people die with it inside of them? Why do some people look at the world broken as it is and do something about it? And why do some people run away? Mm -hmm. And it's easy to believe it's talent, that you're born with it. It's easy to believe that maybe you just had a special upbringing, but the data doesn't support that. I believe it's a skill. And over the years, I've talked around it in seven different directions about how each of us can pick ourselves and choose to teach others and choose to learn and choose to make a difference. But I've never sort of outlined whether or not there's a practice, whether there's a Mm -hmm. way to do it. And I think there is. And I decided it was time. The reason it's not a blog post, because my blog posts reach more people than my books do, is because. I think books work better when you share them and you start a circle of people who hold you accountable. And so it was worth a year of my life to make it into a book. Yeah. When did you first discover the idea of shipping? Like, do you remember that? I do. Um, I've been 
a shipper, someone who takes their work and brings it into the world for a very long time. But when mm-hmm. I was in my first real job at a business school, there were five other brand managers, four other brand managers. These were people from Hood Ice Cream, from big packaged goods companies, Lay's Potato Chips. It takes a year for the Frito-Lay company to redesign a package, a year of committee meetings and studies and everything else. And there's no evidence that it works better than a package that takes a month. It just doesn't. It's mostly people covering up their insecurity and their fear. And in the time I was at Spinnaker, I launched 34 products. Mm. And the typical brand manager probably did six. And my stuff did just as well as theirs. But I had to confront on a regular basis the fear of this might not work. And once I got in the habit of shipping, all of it became less precious. All of it became easier because I knew there'd be another one in a couple of months. I'd be fine. And that posture is something I've adopted and kept up ever since. Yeah. What helped you overcome that fear of this might not work that you talked about? So the fear has never gone away. Hmm. I had the fear just before we started this conversation. The fear shows up every time I'm going to do something important. And, you know, if you want to run a marathon, you don't hire a coach to train you so that you don't get tired. Getting tired is part of the deal. And if you want to ship the work, you don't ask someone how to avoid the fear. The fear is part of the deal. Hmm. So what made you, what made you continue there? Or what helped, what helped you get to that place though? Because so many people do like they feel the fear and they stop, but you, you chose to, even though you're feeling the fear to ship, what, what helped you with that? So how come so many people start running, but don't keep running? And the reason is, because the tired outweighs the health benefits. And what people realize is running doesn't help anybody but you. But shipping creative work, launching a podcast as you did, is a generous act. You could record a podcast and never publish it. That would be selfish. But you're sharing it with other people. You're doing something generous. And so if we can ship, shift in our head the fact that we're not taking, we're giving, all of that stuff that we got taught as a kid kicks in. You don't hold back on shipping because people are waiting for you. You don't hold back on your creative work because someone will miss it. So it's the opposite of hustle and scarcity. It's about connection and generosity. Mm -hmm. So you talked about uh, the fear of not, if it not succeeding, what are some other things that get in the way of just shipping? Uh, well, one of the challenges is the word just, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, another one is perfectionism Mm -hmm. because the phrase good enough has a bad reputation. Let's think about what it actually means. Good enough. So is a plane that flies across the country at 680 miles an hour good enough, or does it have to go 690? Well, 680 is good enough. If it doesn't crash, that's fine. Good enough. We call it good enough for a reason, because it's good enough. And yet, if we're afraid, we say, no, it has to be perfect. And we become a perfectionist. But perfectionism has nothing to do with the customer and everything to do with us, with us hiding, with us protecting ourselves. And the flip side of that is this idea of just. 
Just get it out there. Just ship it. No, just means what the hell, whatever, doesn't matter. That's not what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing for merely, merely show up and do the work, merely show up and lead. Merely means without commentary, without drama, without believing it's going to be fatal. Merely do this generous work because you can. Mm -hmm. So just in your own experience, and I know that you've probably had tons of, like literally probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of conversations around shipping as well. Uh, Is there anything else besides fear that gets in the way of people shipping? Well, Steve Pressfield would say, no, the resistance is everywhere that slows us down. Mm -hmm. I would say that structural challenges traditionally got in the way, Mm -hmm. that it was hard for somebody uh, from a different background to get published by a gatekeeper. It was hard to get the benefit of the doubt and get picked by an agent or a record label. And so you were prevented from shipping by a system that was indoctrinated into sameness. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we think about rock and roll, the first group is also the last group of women to ever have a number one billboard uh, pop record with the Go-Go's. That's insane, right? Because half the people on earth are women and yet only one number one. Well, that's because of this systemic problem of gatekeepers, not because all women are afraid. And so what's shifted is they gave us all a keyboard and that keyboard is connected to everybody else. What shifted is no one can tell you you can't publish. No one can tell you you can't share your idea. No one can tell you you can't teach. If you want to teach, show up and teach. They can't stop you. And so at that point, it becomes more about the story we tell ourselves and less about the story the rest of the culture says about us. Mm-hmm. And. I was going to say, just as you were talking, it even just made, uh, like, I just started thinking about fear even more. And what helped you identify what, what your fear was? Because I think fear plays it out so differently whenever it comes to different people. For some, it's a specific person. For some, it is failure or the, the perfectionism that you talked about. How did you go about discovering, like, what was at the root of your fear? You know what? I'm not sure it matters. Hmm. I'm not sure I know what's at the root of my fear. I think that we invented words about a million years after we invented fear. Hmm. And fear, like my dog has fear and he has no words, right? But he still has fear. So we invented words to try to come up with why we feel that. And what we know is that we can put probes in your brain that make you feel certain feelings, make you feel hot, make you feel stressed, make you feel hungry, whatever it is. There isn't any actual cause of it other than electricity in our brain. And we just made up a story about what causes the electricity in our brain, but it's there nonetheless. So if the words help you, please go after the words. If discovering that when you were in third grade, you went to the zoo and a lion scared you, and blah, fine. That, if it works, that's great. Mm-hmm. But My thing is more like, oh, I'm afraid. Okay, thanks for letting me know. I don't need to know why I'm afraid. Hmm. Another thing that you write about, just as I was uh, 
preparing for the interview is you talked about how this is a book about finding your voice and right. which I absolutely love. And I think is it's so needed. How did, how did you go about finding your voice, finding the unique uh, voice of Seth Godin? Yeah, this is great. So um, I don't believe in authenticity. I think that it's a myth that people made up as a way to hide or as a way to be cranky. So often someone in power who tells a bad joke or does something that doesn't work and says, well, I was just being authentic. What they're actually saying is, I wish I had gotten away with that. And they didn't. Um, what we really want is consistent. What we really want is if we're going to go see Bob Dylan in concert, we don't want him to sing like Frank Sinatra. Even if he feels like singing like Frank Sinatra tonight, we want the consistent Bob Dylan. And so this voice that you are hearing of mine is mostly invented because it worked early and I did it more and I did it more. And so when I am on the clock, I am being Seth Godin with a capital S and a capital G because nobody wants to do an interview with me on a day I'm cranky and have me be cranky. That's not what they asked for. They asked for Seth Godin to come. And if we're going to live in this world of connection, I think we have to amplify our consistency and maybe just learn to live with that inside story that isn't productive to share with other people. Mm -hmm. How do you go about navigating that while also continuing to grow and to change? Yeah. yeah. So growth and change are choices. No one accidentally goes to, to Toledo, Ohio. No one accidentally goes to Albuquerque. You go there with intent. We know exactly how to get to Albuquerque, right? We know what you have to buy. We know where you have to go. You have to get on this vehicle and you get off this other side. That's intentional action. Who's it for? Or what's it for? What are the steps necessary for me to change the status quo? We get to do that right now. We get to change the conversation about something we care about. We can change the way people think about education. We can change the way our kids think about their upbringing with intentional action. We do that by starting with the status quo, starting with the consistent version of us, and then adding a new layer to it, right? So we're within our genre, but we're stretching. But we can't go all the way all at once, right? So if Run DMC had come out with their record album in 1860, wouldn't have worked. First, there were no record players, but even if they had tried playing it live, no one would have gotten the joke. They had to be three inches ahead of the status quo, not three yards ahead of the status quo. And so that's how the culture changes. We go as much as we can, but no further, because if we go too far, we're invisible. Mm -hmm. What helps you determine if whether or not you're three inches ahead or you're like three feet or 3,000 feet ahead? You are totally with me. Thank you. This is exactly right. So um, you may have heard of Baroness Elsa von Freitag-Loringhoven, but my guess is you haven't. I have not. Uh, the Baroness was the original punk artist. If you've ever seen Marcel Duchamp's fountain, the urinal that made him famous, he stole it from her. It's her work of art. And one of the reasons that almost no one's heard of the Baroness is she was 20 years ahead of her time, maybe 40. And so she was invisible. She didn't count. My definition of good taste is good taste means knowing what your audience wants three minutes before they do. That when you show up with, what, with that thing that has good taste, 
they go, oh yeah, I like that. That's what good taste is. Now, different groups of people want something different. So if I show up in, I don't know, Oklahoma with a certain uh, suit and tie, people are saying, why, why are you dressed like that? Whereas if I show up in New York City, I might be just right on the curve. So what we have to do is develop good taste. And you know, you have a podcast. What does your podcast sound like when I listen to it? Because the podcast of eight years ago don't sound like the podcast of today. When we look at a seminal podcast like This American Life or Serial, they changed our expectation as to what a good podcast sounded like. But they couldn't go too far. They had to go just far enough, right? And that cycle continues over and over again until something sounds old-fashioned because the cycle has gotten ahead of it. What helps you develop your taste? So good taste comes from understanding the genre. What do you rhyme with? What category are you in? In the bookstore, in the iPad store, in the clothing store, you need to be next to something else. And you then begin to make assertions in your head with or without words about what's going to work and what's not. So I interviewed Diane von Furstenberg about 15 years ago. She invented the wrap dress, was on the cover of Newsweek. Um, and I was trying to get her to talk about how she knew a style was going to work. And she was functionally illiterate, unable to use words to describe her sense of style. She just couldn't talk about it. But she just knew. She had intuition, which is translated into good taste. And if you don't have that intuition, you can earn it. And you earn it by blogging every day, by going to the bookstore every week, by finding your field and saying, oh, what do these things have in common? Why did that become a hit? Why didn't that become a hit? And, you know, so someone like John Hammond, one guy discovered and popularized, you ready for this? Aretha Franklin, Benny Goodman, and Bob Dylan, and Bruce Springsteen, one person over the course of their lifetime. Because John Hammond had good taste. Another thing that you write about in your book, which really uh, resonated really strongly with me, was how a good process can lead to good outcomes, but it doesn't guarantee them. And the question that I was wondering about is, what has led you to have peace about the, hey, I did the process right. I may not have gotten the outcome that I wanted, but I did the process right. What's helped you be at peace with that? Yeah. It's a little bit of lying. It's a little bit of self-talk. Because, you know, you know, I flew halfway across the world. I'm in uh, a giant convention center with people who don't speak my language. They're wearing headphones with simultaneous translation. I'm up there and I'm just hitting all my numbers and I'm doing everything. The slide transitions are exactly perfect. And there's a woman in the third row who's on her cell phone. She's not listening to her cell phone. She's talking. She's talking the whole time. She's talking loudly. And seven years later, I still remember it hmm. because I gave up two days of my life to go to Mexico City to give that talk. So yeah, it, it's hard. But as soon, like for the first seven minutes I was on stage, all I could focus on was this woman and how I was failing. And then I said, wait a minute, someone six rows behind her who's getting the joke. This is for him. 
this is for you. And as soon as I shifted, my talk got better and my life got better. So basically every time I'm tired of whining and I want my life to get better, I focus on the process instead of whining about the outcome. Hmm. I was going to say, just even with that, it makes me think of criticism as well and dealing with that because sometimes you get, uh, maybe it's not the outcome that you wanted or it's the outcome that you wanted and yet you're criticized because of it. What, what have you learned through, uh, through just your years of shipping about how, how, to, how to deal with criticism? Yeah. Okay, so we begin with this. Not all criticism is the same. A lot of people have trouble with that. So let's start with a ridiculous example. If you're a stand-up comic and you perform and no one laughs, and then you discover that everyone in the audience doesn't speak English, they're from Italy, their criticism is not helpful. It's not valid. Ignore yeah. them. Shun the non-believers. Number two, insulate yourself from useless criticism. Don't read your one-star reviews on Amazon. They're not going to help you ever. Just don't read them. Don't go on Twitter to see what people think about what you wrote. It's not going to help you. Just don't go. But you need to find people whose criticism is valuable. So in the case of this book, it's called The Practice. It was actually called Trust Yourself. I even had hats made that say trust yourself on them. And Nikki Papadopoulos, my brilliant editor, said, I think we can come up with a better title than that. And she criticized my title and made it better. And I had to make a choice in that moment, which is, why am I even working with other people? Because if I'm working with Nikki Papadopoulos, there's probably a reason. And the reason is she's better at this than me. So listening to her criticism is a gift. And I'm like, do that more, Nikki, please do that more. Because that's why I'm here. Yeah. Who, how did you go about deciding who to listen to? I made a lot of mistakes early on. A lot of really big mistakes. I listened to loud people. And I listened to fearful people. And I listened to angry people. And it almost ruined my career and my peace of mind. And over time, I got smarter about who's got good taste and who's got generosity behind their criticism, not the pleasure of being a troll. Mm -hmm. what, helps you, what helps you deal with criticism whenever it's someone that you're close to and it's like they don't like the work that you're putting out? How do you handle that? Because they are important to you and you do, they are important enough to listen to you, but you're like, I'm going to continue to do this anyway. What helps you with that? Yeah. No, it's, um, you really put your finger on it. It's probably happened to you too, I'm guessing. <laughs> Once uh, or twice. Yeah. It's, um, here's the deal. You are not your work. Someone can dislike your work without disliking you. Mm. They don't know you. They know a version of you. And if you can look at criticism and feedback as criticism and feedback of the work, then you can't take it personally because how could it be personal? It's not about you. It's about the work. Then you can decide, oh, you still like me, but this piece of work, you don't like anchovies. I put anchovies on the pizza. I get it. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It just means you don't like anchovies. That's cool. Yeah. But we don't do it's to it we tend to personalize oh, yeah. the work though. Yeah, that's I, the resistance because the resistance 
doesn't want us to ship work. The resistance is working overtime to come up with ways to keep us from shipping. And so we personalize it because it's a really useful way to keep us from shipping. Yeah, because, I mean, if, if I'm following you, because it's if the work fails, then, we, then we're a failure. Yeah. Because it's so personal. Hmm. Another statement that you talk about is you, you write about how leaders are imposters. Yes, sir. Can you expound on that? So I don't know if you've ever felt imposter syndrome. Most people think they're the only ones who have it. That feeling of being a fraud, of not being entitled, of what am I doing up here? And um, people say to me, how do you get rid of it? And I say, well, of course you feel like an imposter because you are one. And that makes them go like this. But if you're leading, if you're creating the future, of course you're an imposter because you're not sure it's going to work. You're saying you're going to be funny tonight on stage, but you haven't been on stage tonight. You're saying this new plan will help the business, but you haven't launched the new plan. You're saying, right? So what it means to lead is to act as if, to describe a future you cannot guarantee. And that means you're acting like an imposter. You are an imposter. And then the question is what to do about it. How do you get rid of that feeling? And like the fear, what I'm saying to people is you can't get rid of it, but you can at least know that you're on the right track because you're feeling something that is only felt by people who are leading. I imagine that probably at some point in your career while you were shipping, you probably ended up being very discouraged whether for, for yeah. a number of reasons. Whenever those days happen, what helps you encourage yourself and continue to do the work? Um, I added a couple of phrases to my vocabulary. One of them early ones was for now. So someone would say no, and I would hear no for now. No, I don't want to publish this book until it becomes a different book, right? No for now. And that turned into not yet and so far, right? That there are certain phrases we use like I am tall. You are. You're either tall or you're not tall. It's permanent. I am hungry, not so much, because you can stop being hungry as soon as you have an apple. Uh, I am a failure? No, that's not true. Your project failed, but you, you are not a failure. And so, so far and not yet, right? I haven't published a book, not yet, right? I am failing at this career so far. And once we can remind ourselves of that and use those phrases, we can find the fuel to do it again. Mm-hmm. A couple other questions that I want to ask you that, uh, that I ask uh, most of my guests is uh, the first one being, what's a question that no one has ever asked you before that you wish you were asked? Uh, I am uh, super fortunate in that I don't have a shortage of places to put things I want to talk about. Yeah. And that turns out to be true for everybody. Um, And so a big part of my discipline is asking myself questions that I wish people would ask me. Mm. Because anyone can ask themselves a question that they wish people would ask them. Uh, So I know that's not the answer to your question, but that's my answer to your question. Oh, that's good. What What have you gained by learning to ask yourself the questions that you wish other people would ask you? Well, I mean... You know, my blog is 7,500 blog posts strong. And I would say 90% of the blog posts are answers to questions that no one asked me. Hmm. Why is that working? Why is the shower in the hotel like this? 
Why do some people believe the earth is flat? That was today's blog post, right? So all of these questions that no one walked up to me on the street and asked me, there's my rant about why I think it is the way it is. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Um, Who are some people, who are some of your favorite people to learn from? I would say I learned the most from my readers, Mm -hmm. from watching the surprising things they do with my ideas. People regularly show up in my life who read something I wrote 12 years ago and then point to a company with a thousand employees or a body of work or a nonprofit. I'm like, I don't even remember writing about that. I'm thrilled. Let me see what I can learn from what you did because you did it, not me. Um, And then in terms of known uh, people, I would say I learn a lot from watching folks who didn't necessarily write a book about it. So watching how Keith Jarrett navigates improv. Here's a guy who shows up on stage without any idea about what he's going to play and sits down at the piano and plays for two hours, right? How do you do that? It seems like a miracle. I don't think it's a miracle anymore. I think that watching it, thinking about it, there's a process. He has a practice. Yeah. What are some of the things that you've learned from your readers? Um, Some readers I've learned about how complicated our fear is and how much, how hard they will work to stay stuck. And from other readers, I've learned just how extraordinary people are and how hard they will work to overcome indoctrination, disability, racial injustice. They just show up to make things better. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to publish people like Sarah Kay. Uh, I know uh, playwrights like Sarah Jones. Watching these people show up when no one expects them to make a difference and do it anyway, that inspires me. What's something that you've changed your mind about recently? Um, A few years ago, I changed my mind about how an open web would be a net positive when we gave everyone a microphone. And I've been disturbed and disappointed Mm. at how many trolls there are. And also disturbed and disappointed that the media networks haven't responded by building boundaries to make things better, but instead tried to cash out by making things worse. Um, I've changed my mind about uh, the ability of people to get past a day-long argument to get more focused on what matters for the long haul. Mm. Because it's really easy, particularly when you're a kid, to imagine that the world is like a TV episode and it has to end in half an hour with a resolution. And there's lots of things in our culture in this time of distress that aren't resolving. And people are finding the resilience to live with the fact that they're not resolved yet. Mm -hmm. What helps you just deal with that? I think, you know, Chung Young Trump Rinpoche said, uh, the bad news is we are falling and falling and falling. And the good news is there's nothing to hold on to. And industrialism wants us to have something to hold on to. But it might be that there's nothing to hold on to, and that might make the whole thing a lot easier to deal with. Yeah. 
One last question. If you could pass on uh, three lessons that you've learned in your life, and it was a guarantee that everybody else learns these lessons, what would they be? All right, let's try this. Um, Leave your campsite cleaner than you found it. Um, When in doubt, give other people the benefit of the doubt. And figure out how to make things better, even if it's just a little. Hmm. That's great. Well, Seth, I know that people are going to want to buy the book, The Practice, and I'm assuming they could probably either go to your website or go to all other areas. Wherever finer or non-finer books are sold. Yeah. And uh, for people who want to continue to learn from you and your blog and everything, where's the best place for people to go? We've got workshops, including the Alt-MBA at akimbo.com, A-K-I-M-B-O. My podcast is at akimbo.link and my blog, 7,000 posts so far, is at seths.blog. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you for just doing the work. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for leading and for giving me a chance to show up. I truly appreciate it. Well, Seth, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for all the work that you continue to do as well important to people like me, our audience, and literally millions of other people as well. And so thank you so much for being on the Learner's Corner podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure you don't miss a single episode is by subscribing to our podcast and whatever podcast player you use, whether that be Spotify or Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player that may that uh, that you may be listening to this on. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss a single episode is by subscribing. If you're, you're on Apple Podcasts, feel free to leave a rating and write a review or any podcast platform that you're on greatly appreciated and that helps so much also if you have something that you would like us to talk about on the podcast or you would just love to learn more about please reach out to me the best way to do that is on my instagram which is at caleb j mason would love to hear from you would love to learn from you would love to know some of the things that you're interested in learning more about as well and maybe we can make those things happen on the podcast as well So anyway, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.